American Founders University presents the Principles of Prosperity Lecture Series by Rick Kerber. Session 1, An Introduction to the Principles. This recording and the lecture content are copyright 2007 by American Founders University. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization. In the script to a popular movie, there's a dialogue between two characters discussing what I would call the cause of freedom. I want to quote from that dialogue today, and I would ask you to put yourself in the dialogue. I'd like you to imagine yourself in the role of the character responding to these questions. Now, some of you will easily identify the movie. That's not what I wish to draw your attention to today. It's the substance of this one conversation that will create the context for my remarks tonight. The character Morpheus asks, I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he's expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Neo, who I would ask you to try and identify with in this dialogue, full of uncertainty, asks, The Matrix? Do you know what the matrix is? The matrix is the world around us. It's everywhere. Even now in this very room, you can see it. When you look out your window or when you turn on your television, you can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo then asks, what truth? That you are a slave. Like everyone, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this... There's no turning back. And then Morpheus offers him a choice between two pills. In one hand, he extends a blue pill. He says, you take the blue pill and this story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. In the other hand, he has a red pill. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole really goes. Remember, he says, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. I find that dialogue so striking and so compelling because for generations now, we've been born into a world where we are trained, taught, and educated into a paradigm of scarcity. Some call it the thinking of the Great Depression. Some call it the 
world of crisis or the crisis of modernity, if you get into philosophy, most of us don't call it anything. Most of us just feel it. From the time I was a little boy, I remember looking around at the world, wondering why. Why? Why? There's never enough money. There's never enough time. There's never enough opportunity. It seems that even those who sometimes put on the smile behind their smile is a life of quiet desperation, frustrated, like a splinter in their mind. We've been lulled asleep. There have been many great statesmen over the last 80 years who have been trying to wake us up. My friend Les McGuire said the world is changing. If you were to ask him what is changing about the world, the answer would be some of us are beginning to wake up. And that is going to change the world. Back in the American Revolution, they talked about the spirit of 1776. And of course, we remember 1776 because of the Declaration of Independence. And if you get your dollar bill out and you turn it over and you look at the reverse of the great seal of the United States, you'll see the pyramid with the all-seeing eye of providence, with the motto across the top from Aeneas in the Aeneid by Virgil, where he proclaims that God prospered him, and the founders say God prospered us, and across the bottom you see the Latin for new order of the ages or the beginning of a new era. And we can talk about those concepts and we can get excited, we can get nostalgic, we might even remember or feel like we remember that patriotic spirit from the time I was a small boy. I remember feeling patriotic. But what do we really know about what happened in 1776 and what led to what we began to call the American dream? If you'll notice at the bottom of that pyramid, there are Roman numerals. The base or foundation of that pyramid says 1776. I want to quote from you something that Thomas Jefferson penned in the Declaration of Independence. Dr. Skousen said it was the first two paragraphs of the Declaration over which he labored uniquely because he'd already written much of what was contained in the Declaration of Independence as this crisis of oppression and tyranny had been unfolding over the years. But he tried to incorporate, Jefferson, those principles, those ancient principles, in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. These are the principles that I was referring to earlier, the principles of prosperity. And I would like you to listen for principles, truths that don't change regardless of time or circumstance. Jefferson penned, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth, now listen to this, to assume among the powers of the earth, not create the power, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Now pause. This declaration could appropriately be described as a declaration of principles. He begins by laying a foundation that the power 
that the founders were taking upon themselves existed independent of them. Despite their weaknesses or their frailties, the power that these great men wielded was the result of their understanding certain eternal truths and being willing to stand up for them. The laws of nature and of nature's God. Keep your brain on for a minute and listen for more evidence of this idea. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Okay, explain yourself. We hold these truths to be self-evident, meaning we don't need any fancy teachers to explain them to us. When the mind conceives of them, their truth becomes obvious. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I don't know how we miss the point. But twice in that phrase, the principles are referenced. That men are created? How are they created? By some standard. Not by some whim. Not by some mystic or mystical idea. All men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I think most politicians these days could use a lesson in the simple definition of the word unalienable. Unalienable means they cannot be taken away. They cannot be given by government. They are unalienable because even though the government may violate them, even though the government may fail to protect them, it is still not within their power to make it right or good to violate principle. Or in other words, all human beings should be able, be able to agree that it is good and right for all of us to live to have liberty, and to pursue the life that is most pleasing to our choice. Now, of course, there are naysayers who then want to say, but if we gave everyone the right to pursue what they choose, what kind of world would that be? Those who say such things are either deceived or are deceivers. For these principles or laws are consistent with themselves and contain self-evidentiary checks against contradiction. Or in layman's terms, if you just think about it for a little bit, you'll start to understand why my freedom or liberty to pursue happiness could never infringe upon your liberties so long as I and you agreed that these rights were unalienable. Or in other words, I don't have the right to deprive you of liberty. That wouldn't make either you or I happy. It's self-evidently true if you think about it. Now, listen to what Jefferson says. He said, governments were instituted, or are instituted, among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Why? To secure these rights. Not to give them, 
not to create them, not to define them, to secure them, to use our resources together in a shared commitment to principle to ensure that there's no force or coercion, which would include deception. Those are the two ways you destroy all three of those fundamental rights. He goes on to say, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Why? Why would it be the right of the people to alter or abolish a government that was destructive of these ends? If the government begins to violate principle, if the government begins to violate principle, it is no valid government because those rights are unalienable. The government can't will them away. They can't make it right to change them or give them up. Now, when he says it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, listen to this. He says, to institute new government. Not to just give up on the idea of government. Not to just get so down and in scarcity and misery that you just think all hope is lost. How would you institute new government? This is the question we should be asking those in civic affairs and in public affairs. They advocate change all the time. They advocate solutions all the time. They even advocate eliminating or changing some of the fundamental components of the existing state, local, and federal governments. But here's the criteria that Jefferson says free men dedicated to true principles will use when deciding whether or not they will do what is being advocated. He says, laying the new government's foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Or in other words, if you don't know the principles upon which the new changes or new forms or new governments are going to be based, you are not qualified to even advocate for the change. Let me say that again. If you don't understand the principles, if you don't understand the laws that govern, you have no seat at the table. Your opinion is literally worthless. We don't talk like that in 2006 because it's not politically correct. I'm not saying that people who don't know those principles are worthless. I'm saying their opinion on what to do about government is literally worthless. It would be like hiring a physics teacher who did not understand any of the laws of physics, who would simply talk to you about the material world. What could they really teach you? How well could they really lay a foundation to ensure that your thought advanced in a productive manner. It would be like hiring a mathematics teacher that didn't understand the basic rules of arithmetic. Yet we elect politicians and public servants and leaders of social and community organizations all the time without ever asking them simple questions like, when you're advocating this change, upon which principles are you basing your decision? Just because someone has the idea that they would make a good elected representative, and just because we have given them 
the right to run for office does not qualify them to have an opinion that means anything. This has become a very threatening situation for the United States of America in 2006. Over the last 80 years, we have been lulled so far asleep that the reason most people would be offended at the type of remarks that I am making is not even that it's politically incorrect. It's that if you even ask them to get out a piece of paper and a pencil and articulate five principles of anything, good government, good religion, or good economics, they would look at you with a blank stare. They may even start by asking you, what is a principle? When I went to college, the dominant thought in the school of philosophy was that there are no fundamental truths. The first textbook I read was called Beyond the Objective, meaning there are no such things as absolute objective and universal truths. I remember getting in a little bit of trouble when I said, are you sure that that's true? Because if that's true, then we know there's at least one. And if there's one, how do you know there's not more? Well, because the first one says so. I see. This is the philosophical thinking that has crept into our culture since the mid-1800s. It started to become socially popular in the early 1900s. And after the Great Depression, it literally became our escape from responsibility. We simply gave up the idea that we were able to manage our own lives. And if that is an overstatement, simply look in the mirror. What is your plan for changing the world? What is your plan for laying the foundation for a prosperous family? It doesn't matter to me what religion you identify with or what political party you identify with. When you look in the mirror, if you cannot identify the principles for which you stand, I'm not saying there are no people in the world who can do that. Among this group and among many good groups of people, there are those who love truth and who do not believe the myth of the matrix. But by and large, sitting in our lazy boys, watching the sitcoms and the evening news has replaced study and pondering. Maybe not for you, but in the world I grew up in, I could probably add up all of the total hours of family discussion we spent regarding principles and not come up with an hour. And I don't think it's because I was raised in a bad family. I was raised in a loving and a good family who had been trained, taught, and educated to delegate their decisions to those who were wiser, more capable, more free, more willing, more passionate, more educated, so that we could get to work. Doing what? Thomas Jefferson penned those words in 1776. In less than 50 years, that revolution, or what we call the cause of freedom, started to spread across the globe. Literally, if you want to read Thomas Paine, if you read Common Sense or The Rights of Man, 
You will read him defending the revolution in France, talking excitedly about how the spirit of 76 had spilled over the ocean and into Europe. But also in less than 50 years, a very deliberate revolt or critique or rebellion began to take place. There were those who did not like the idea or the ideas that were governing what was happening in the United States of America. And I do not mean to engage in any type of whimsical, blue sky, false philosophy of conspiracies and secrets and unknown mysteries. I'll leave that to those who don't have anything better to do. I simply want to introduce you to some basics and then invite you to research, to use your mind, and not to believe it because I said it. Truths are truths whether you believe them or not, whether Rick says them or not. My favorite saying is some things are true whether you believe them or not. So I say them to you tonight, not because I want you to then accept them as the truth and go out with your marching orders from the free capitalist. I say them as an invitation. Just take these few basic ideas and evidences and study. We live in a day unparalleled. We have more information at the access of our little fingertips in five minutes with Google than any generation in human history has ever had in any curriculum, in any library, or in any collection of learning. You can research any topic and get good and bad information. You can publish your own information. You can do it. Frederick Engels published a document in 1847 outlining some contradictory principles. It was a critique of that which the founders stood for, of the cause of liberty. It was an argument that the cause of liberty only helped a few people, and they weren't the right ones. So we should all unite together and tear them down so they're just like us. Well, those are my words. Let me share with you Frederick Engels' words. And I apologize if this isn't entertaining or tingling to your ears. But to tell you the truth, it's more important to me that you hear in his own words what started the counter-revolution against freedom than that you hear mine. Engels wrote in 1847, Above all, our revolution will have to take control of industry and of all branches of production out of the hands of mutually competing individuals and instead institute a system in which all these branches of production are operated by society as a whole. That is, for the common account, according to the common plan, and with participation of all members of society. You know who shouts when you start to talk like that? With glee and happiness? If you worked in a company and you were all on a team, and instead of receiving individual compensation, because that's prideful, you know, that means that some of you might not get paid the same as others, regardless of your production, the company came in and said, everybody in this room is going to get paid an equal distribution of the profits generated by those in this room. 
There will be no bosses. There will be no leadership. That's not egalitarian. None of you are more important than the other. Everybody go to work and produce, and we'll take everything that you produce and we'll divide it among you. Do you know who stands up and shouts when that plan is advocated? Shouts hooray? Those who weren't carrying their weight in the first place. Those who coveted that which was their neighbor's. Those who wanted something for nothing. Those who were victims and said, it's not my fault. Give me what you have. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Try to hear what I am saying. Back in Engels' words, he says, it will, in other words, this revolution that he was calling for, abolish competition and replace it with association. That sounds so nice. Moreover, since the management of industry by individuals necessarily implies private property, and since competition is in reality merely the manner and form in which the control of industry by private property owners expresses itself, it follows that private property cannot be separated from competition and the individual management of industry. Private property must, therefore, be abolished. And in its place must come the common utilization of all instruments of production and the distribution of all products according to common agreement. In a word, what is called the communal ownership of goods. You want the cliff notes? Here's what he says in summary. In fact, the abolition of private property is doubtless the shortest and most significant way to characterize the revolution. Pause for a minute. A revolution that he says can be characterized by eliminating the idea and existence of private property. Once you understand the principle that people are assets, you then understand that he's advocating that we don't protect anything individually, only collectively, and that your worth as a human being is not intrinsic it's based on the group to which you belong. Study it out. Think it through. He says, this categorizes the revolution in the whole social order which has been made necessary by the development of industry. And for this reason, it, the abolishment of private property, is rightly advanced by communists as their main demand. Now, I've quoted that many times. Here is something that is less easy to hear. He goes on, democracy would be wholly valueless to us if it were not immediately used as a means for putting through measures directed against private property and ensuring the livelihood of the collective proletariat. It is not sufficient for a person to stand up and advocate for democracy. Democracy is used by the enemies of freedom because we have been trained, taught, and educated that democracy means freedom. That is self-evidently false, just as tyranny does not equal freedom. Tyranny usually means the rule of one. Democracy, in its purest sense, simply means the tyranny of the majority. If you think that's too philosophical, just think about it this way. If you were in this room, and you knew no one in here liked you, because of your actions or your opinions, would democracy mean freedom for you? 
What if you were richer than everyone in the room? Would one man, one vote be a sufficient rallying cry for liberty for you? The founding fathers did not advocate democracy. I challenge you to think that through. You have been trained, taught, and educated like I have been to believe that democracy means freedom, and it does not. There is an element of democracy that is essential to freedom, for sure. But the founders advocated what they called a democratic republic. Ask the common citizen to even define what a republic is, and you'll understand why Neo could not give answer to Morpheus. And Morpheus said, it was like a splinter in your mind. You know something's wrong. Why is it that all the political parties seem to stand up for democracy, and yet our freedoms are slowly being eroded? Again, back to Engels. The main measures emerging as the necessary result of existing relations are the following. 1847, he wrote a bulleted list of what their counter-revolution against what the founders had rediscovered and launched would need to accomplish in order to win. Now, I want you to hear these. 1847, it's been 149 years Let's measure how well they've done. Number one, limitation of private property through progressive taxation, heavy inheritance taxes, abolition of inheritance through collateral lines, forced loans, etc. Just think about it. Do a little research. Number two, the gradual expropriation of landowners, industrialists, railroad magnates, and ship owners, partly through competition by state-run industry, partly through direct compensation in the form of bonds. Or in other words, let's get everyone dependent on government subsidies in those industries, and then let's create government-subsidized businesses to compete with those who are dependent on the government subsidies, and that's how we can eliminate private business. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you saw a privately owned utility company serving more than a few thousand people in the United States of America? Consider what privately owned means, and then go look. And then go look. When was the last time you saw privately developed infrastructure in a city? Sewers, streets, Telephone lines. I mean, no government subsidy and no government company or department involved. Number three, confiscation of the possessions of all immigrants and rebels against the majority of the people. This is what scares me about what I call the blind sheep of the brain-off conspiracy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I've written an essay called The Brain Off Conspiracy. You can find that on the website freecapitalist.com. There are those who love freedom who fight firefighters instead of fires. The patriotic sheep are out there telling us that those coming from Mexico are the threat. I know this hits a raw nerve. 
In our world today, we have learned to pit people against people because we've been trained, taught, and educated that the value of people doesn't consist in them intrinsically. It consists in the group to which they belong. Remember, we've covered that already. That ideology has been sown into the public consciousness very deliberately. And so now the question isn't who has rights individually. It's which groups are more important than others. Literally, you hear people saying, let's round up all the illegals and send them back. It sounds like a good idea to someone who loves America. Until you think how utterly absurd and tyrannical the notion is that implies it's even possible. I know this will offend many patriotic sheep. But think it through. How would I know if anyone in this room was an American citizen or a guest who had come here legally? How could I possibly know? What means could there possibly be to identify whether someone was here legally or illegally? The implication of the remark is the same implication that led people in Russia to have to carry papers with them everywhere they would go and that gave the police the unilateral right at any point in time to confiscate property to verify its ownership prior to giving it back. You go to communist and socialist countries today and that's how they live. And if you really think you could ever round up people who are here illegally without tyranny, ask yourself this. Do you want to carry a national ID card? What would be the penalty if you were found without one? Could you be detained until you proved you were a citizen? Under what criteria could you even be stopped? If you were breaking no law otherwise, what new enforcement power are you willing to give the police to stop a person accused of no crime to ask for papers? Please try to hear what I'm saying Not what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't have a problem. We have a problem. The problem is we don't know the principles for which we stand. And so the solutions we advocate violate the principles as badly as the problem we face. And like Livy described as the cause for the downfall of Rome... We are fastly approaching the day when we can no longer endure our vices... Nor do we have the courage to face the remedies needed to cure our vices. The biggest vice we have is we don't understand the consequence of our own ideas. We see a bunch of illegal immigrants and we think they're the problem. Let me ask you this. If people want to come to the United States of America, generally speaking... Does that mean we're doing something good or bad? Well, we're giving them social welfare. Stop for a minute. Regardless of what we're giving them, why would someone risk their life to come here? Are you willing to risk your life to at least get educated on what the founders stood for that made this such an attractive place in the first place? Before you hop onto a bandwagon, I would check the axles and the wheels and make sure that the bandwagon upon which you were hopping was going to take you someplace. It's a challenge to research. 
understand the underlying principles. The ideas that govern the type of thinking that we see in the world today are consistent with this counter-revolution in 1847. Here's number four. Organization of labor or employment on publicly owned land in factories and workshops with competition among the workers being abolished and with the factory owners, insofar as they still exist, being obliged to pay the same wages as those paid by the state. You want a fun experiment? Go read John Stossel's recent report called Stupid in America and find out how hard it is to fire a teacher who's proven to have sexually or otherwise assaulted a student in the public school system. They have rubber rooms, literally, where tens of thousands of teachers who cannot be fired go and read magazines because the fourth plank of that platform has been implemented. Don't believe it just because I'm telling you. Don't start an email campaign to a thousand un interested people who are going to forward it to another 10,000 interested people to get them all worked up into a frenzy about something you didn't know anything about in the first place, go research. And then ask yourself, what principle does that violate? Number five, this counter-revolution wants an equal obligation on all members of society to work until such time as private property has been completely abolished through the formation of industrial armies especially in agriculture, industrial armies. Think about what that would mean and then look for it. Number six, centralization of money and credit in the hands of the state through a national bank with state capital and the suppression of all private banks and bankers. I challenge you to go research what happened in 1913 to the banking industry in the United States of America. I challenge you to research what happened with the passage of the 17th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and how that relates to that plan. It's a challenge to research. Plank number seven, education of the number of national factories, workshops, railroad ships, bringing new lands into cultivation and improvement of land already under cultivation, all in proportion to the growth of the capital and labor force at the disposal of the nation. Or in other words, read, put the government in charge of how we use the land. Number eight, education of all children from the moment they can leave their mother's care in national establishment at national cost. You want to undo what the founders did? Here's the formula that they're trying. They've been trying it for 149 years. How are they doing? Number nine. Construction on public lands of great palaces as communal dwellings for associated groups of citizens engaged in both industry and agriculture and combining in their way of life the advantages of urban and rural conditions while avoiding the one-sidedness and drawbacks of each. In other words, create really big buildings paid for at public expense so that all of the workers can go and taste what prosperity looks like. You want to know what that looks like? In all seriousness, have you ever flown into Denver, Colorado? Have you seen Denver International Airport? 
Go research the history of why that airport was built, why it was overbuilt, why it was built so grand in its architecture, and what the purpose of the airport was as a public policy. Go research. Number 10, destruction of all unhealthy and jerry-built dwellings in urban districts. What does that mean? Get rid of all the ugly buildings. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Until somebody says your house is one of the ugly buildings. Go ask the people who suffer now as a result of the Supreme Court decision called Kello versus New London, what was wrong with their houses? What was blighted about a neighborhood that had been kept in some families for over a 100 years? The Supreme Court said they weren't generating enough tax revenue. I guess that meant jerry-built. I don't know what jerry-built meant in 1847. I know what the communists and socialists argue. They say it's the buildings that are falling down and no good. Yes, that's what they say to start the revolution. And to finish it, you get Kello versus New London. Number 11, equal inheritance rights for children born in and out of wedlock. Or in other words, don't privilege, don't privilege the union between a man and a wife. Why would you want to do that? Number 12, concentration of all means of transportation in the hands of the nation. Can you show me a city, a state, or a federally controlled area that's not governed transportation-wise? by the public. People want to build a new light rail. They asked me, should we build a new light rail? I said, who would own it? Who's we? Us. Who's us? All of us. I don't know. Have you talked to everybody? (laughs) Did everybody buy into the idea? Well, we could have a vote. I see. So then the people who vote against it don't have to pay for it. Well, there's no way to enforce that. So everybody'd have to pay. But if the majority wants to pay, let's do it. I see. Have you read the principles of communism in 1847? Do you understand what the effect of that type of thinking does to freedom? Now, some of you might be going, oh, come on. I want to get prosperous. I want to make money. The reason you want to get prosperous and you want to make money is because you're not and you're not. And the reason you're not is because of the way you think. Ideas have consequences. If you think that we should consolidate transportation under the government, that's the consequence of an idea that you have that's also eroding the foundation for prosperity in your life. I know you can't see the connection. That's why it's called the matrix. Now, here's my favorite part. He says, it is impossible, of course, to carry out all these measures at once. But one will always bring others in its wake. Or in other words, who cares if you can get people to agree with your whole agenda? Just get them to agree with one piece. Because as soon as you do one of these things, more follow, necessarily. Once the first radical attack on private property has been launched, the proletariat will find itself forced to go ever further, to concentrate increasingly in the hands of the state, all capital, all agriculture, all transportation, all trade. All the foregoing measures are directed to this end, and they will become practicable and feasible capable of producing their centralizing effects to precisely the degree that the proletariat through its labor multiplies the country's productive forces. Or in other words, the more communists we have, the faster this will happen. 
So what happens if nobody wants to call themselves communists anymore? You know, the Berlin Wall came down. We won, right? Here's what he said in 1847. Finally, when all capital, all production, all exchange have been brought together in the hands of the nation, private property will disappear of its own accord. Money will become superfluous, and production will so expand and man so change that society will be able to slough off whatever of its old economic habits may remain. Will it be possible for this revolution to take place in one country alone? No. But by creating the world market... Big industry has already brought all the people of the earth and especially the civilized people into such close relations with one another that none is independent of what happens to the other. Further, it has coordinated the social development of the civilized countries to such an extent that in all of them, bourgeois and proletariat have become the decisive classes and the struggle between them, the great struggle of the day. We don't call it that today. We call it the struggle between the rich and the poor. And then you go back and you say, well, how do you win the cause? Well, the more people who are communists, the easier this becomes. Well, we don't call us the proletariat of the communists anymore. We just say the more poor people there are, the easier it will be for those of us in charge to get this passed. Or in other words, the more we erode the foundations of economic liberty and make it more and more difficult for people to find prosperity in their individual lives, they will be more likely to support our calls for turning to the government for answers to their problems because they will feel helpless. What is one person or one family or one neighborhood going to do? Stand up against the whole government? I mean, geez, Rick, you can't stop welfare by yourself, so why not get yours? I mean, there's nothing wrong with me taking federal subsidies to go to school as long as I use that education to fight the good fight right and in war I wouldn't shoot you if you went over to the enemy's camp and put on their uniform and started shooting at me wrong here's his conclusion it follows that the communist revolution will not merely be a national phenomenon but must take place simultaneously in all civilized countries that is to say at least in England, America, France, and Germany. Pause. In England, who is in control? We don't call them socialists. There are the Tories and the Labour Party. There are conservatives. They all advocate socialism. In France, who is in control? The democratic socialists. In Germany, who is in control? So that doesn't offend us. And we're like, well, yeah, good thing that's in Europe. In America, who is in control? Those who regularly advocate for principles or those who regularly advocate for government solutions to our problems? He goes on, it will develop in each of these countries more or less rapidly according as one country or the other has a more developed industry, greater wealth, a more significant mass of productive forces. Hence, it will go slowest and will meet most obstacles in Germany, most rapidly and with the fewest difficulties in England. It will have a powerful impact on the other countries of the world and will radically alter the course of development which they have followed up till now while greatly stepping up its pace. It is a universal revolution and will accordingly have a universal range. Does this person sound unmotivated? Does this sound like an undeliberate cause? Does this sound like something that's a secret? 
Oh, those who advocate it do so in secret until they get us to support them, and then we advocate it in public. I spent a lot of time, and I warned you in advance, it wouldn't be very entertaining or very tingling to your ears. But it is a challenge to research. If you can't endure four paragraphs from the principles of communism, how will you ever hope to master the 13 basic principles of prosperity? If you really love freedom, are you willing to turn your brain on? This revolution of socialist thought, which started in the mid-1800s, was primarily defended because the socialists fought against each other at first. You had the national socialists, you had the federal socialists, you had the communists, and you had other schools of thoughts all advocating for the right approach or strategy for implementing socialism. So we said, well, you know, Hitler and Stalin, they don't like each other. Or Khrushchev, you know, I mean, we can count on him at least for a while because it would have a good effect. You know, it's good policy. But what principles did Khrushchev advocate that justified us trusting him at all? How did we let Cuba become communist? Why don't you go read a few essays published in national newspapers? Literally, just go to the library. Just go back to Castro's coming to power and look at the United States senators who said, there's no way Castro is a communist. He's not our enemy. He's just being branded a communist. Who are you to call other people communists anyway? You anti-communists? We've got to support Castro. He wants to help his people. How did that happen? Why do you care? William Butler Yeats, probably the most popular or close to the most popular of the American poets of the last hundred years, wrote a poem when he saw this taking place. The Bolsheviks, or those who advocated this revolution by violence, the communists, they were called the Red Spread as they spread across Europe or the blood tide. Yeats wrote a poem called The Second Coming about the time the Red Spread was coming to America. He says, turning and turning in the widening gyres, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. You'll have to study that. But the last two lines you shouldn't have to study. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Who's more passionate? Those who advocate for government solutions or those who say we should be self-reliant. If you were to make a list of political causes, could you name more causes of those who advocate for collective control of our problems? Or could you name more who advocated individual responsibility? Do you know what conviction is? Why do the best among us lack conviction? 
The dictionary says that conviction is the act or process of convicting a crime, being convicted of a crime, especially in a court of law. What does it mean, though? We use the word convicting to define conviction. It goes on to say that it is the act of convincing a person of error or of compelling the admission of a truth. A self-evident truth compels your admission. It compels the assent of your mind. If you believe in a self-evident truth, you have a conviction. No one can debate you on it. Not because your willpower is stronger than them, but because you recognize the truth of it so clearly so that debating about it would become absurd. There's one battleground for one conviction that we can all easily win. How often would you engage in a debate with a neighbor whose constant argument was that you didn't exist? Imagine that every time you went out to lunch, that was the conversation. Your neighbor trying to convince you that you did not exist. Would you keep going to lunch with them? What would be the result? If he won, it would be insanity. Because the mind immediately recognizes the absurdity of the self-evident truth that you do exist. I like the philosopher's question. Who's asking the question? Because if I'm asking the question, do I exist? I've just answered the question. So it is with the principles Jefferson discovered and Madison called the ancient principles. They are as easy to give your assent. They are as easy to use as governing standards. The third definition of a conviction in the dictionary is a strong persuasion or belief, the state of being convinced. A synonym for conviction is certainty. What are you certain about? What are you certain about in the world around you? What do you know for certain? There are voices who would say you can know nothing for certain. Well, I'll have to dispense with the sermonizing and get on with the teaching, but I get passionate about that because I grew up in a world where quite literally everything was debatable. I won the national debate tournament by learning how to not have conviction. I could stand up and argue that racism was good or racism was bad and win. I could stand up and argue that this social policy or that social policy was good or bad and win. I have the gold medal to prove it. What good is it to pick an issue and defend it if you don't know the principles upon which it is based? I want to uh, share with you a quote from Ezra Taft Benson about a conversation he had with Khrushchev. I would suggest you give yourself a minute to ponder its implications. He said he was Secretary of Agriculture sent by Eisenhower to visit with Khrushchev. By the way, Khrushchev was the communist leader of Soviet Russia. Ezra Taft Benson wrote, I have talked face to face with the godless communist leaders. It may surprise you to learn that I was host to Mr. Khrushchev for a half a day when he visited the United States. Not that I'm proud of it. I opposed his coming then, and I still feel it was a mistake to welcome this atheistic murderer as a state visitor. But according to President Eisenhower, Khrushchev had expressed a desire to learn something of American agriculture. And after seeing Russian agriculture, I can understand why. 
As we talked face to face, he indicated that my grandchildren would live under communism. After assuring him that I expected to do all in my power to assure that his and all other grandchildren will live under freedom, he arrogantly declared in substance, and I quote, You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright. But we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you'll finally wake up and find you already have communism. We won't have to fight you. We'll so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. And then, as Taft Benson said in 1963, and they're ahead of schedule in their own scheme. Well, what has happened in 43 years? We won, right? Reagan got elected. Communists are no more. That's why we have no problems with North Korea and China. Iran, by the way, Iran's political leaders subscribe to communalism. Their political tutors and mentors were socialists from Europe. That's how they've structured their political system. Saddam Hussein was a Ba'athist which is the Middle East party for socialism. Syria is run by the socialists. They're doing good things in the world, right? Egypt is struggling because it is a state-run society. Indonesia is struggling. You find conflict in the world today where terrorists grow. It's not because men are inherently terrorists. It's because when you lack conviction, you begin to loathe even your life. And then there's nothing sacred about living, and therefore there's nothing wrong with killing. You find a place on the map where terrorism grows, And you will see the mature fruits of socialist thought. I challenge you to do it. Get out a map. Get out a crayon with your little seventh graders. They'll tell you which countries are which. I think they still teach that in school. They won't tell you anything about it. When I taught geography, they had removed the description of the kinds of government that were labeled by name, and we simply memorize their names. Because, you know, it's not our place to judge whether it's a good government or bad. But get your crayon and just take a red crayon and color the countries where the ruling parties or classes have roots to socialism. Color the ones that are overtly socialist, dark red. Color the ones that are lightly socialist, light red. And then look and see where the bombs are going off. Look and see where people are starving. Where those houses that they're supposed to be getting rid of dominate the landscape. Where those national transportation industries remind you of the 1950s in America. Where those agricultural and industrial collectives can't produce a tenth of what Bill Gates produced. Don't take my word for it. 
So why spend the time telling you all that before introducing the 13 principles of prosperity? Because some people think it's about making money. It is not. That is what Karl Marx used as his argument to unite the proletariat. Dividing the rich and the poor and telling the poor, wouldn't you like to live like the rich? Give me all your money and your gold and your silver, and I promise you, I will take all the things of this earth and divide it equally among you, so there will be no rich or poor. You won't have to have money. Just let me control it. You'll notice the communist and socialist leaders never live in the housing they give away to their citizens. They don't drive the cars that they allow their citizens to buy. And in the United States of America, the senators and representatives in Washington who advocate against big SUVs show up to their meetings and Ford Expeditions and Explorers and Chevy Suburbans and Tahoes, you know, and they raise money against those, from those movie stars who are driving the Hummers and the Expeditions, right? Because they're entitled to those big fancy cars. You know, because they're leading. Oh, you think I'm being facetious? Go do a little research. Find your favorite contributors to the socialist causes and see how they live their life. See if they really, not just their words, really are living by the philosophy they advocate. I would suggest, as most of you have heard, the scriptural injunction is true, which teaches there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. That is a challenge to research. If you're not obtaining blessings... If you're not prospering, the remedy is simply to learn how to be obedient to the law upon which the things you want to obtain in your life are predicated. All of the great world religions reference Abraham as a patriarch or father of many nations, and the scriptures say he prospered and was prosperous because he obeyed God. Yet we live in a world where the mystics have taught us that to be righteous means... You shouldn't want to prosper. I remember when I announced the title of this ever-being-published book, God is a Capitalist. When I said the subtitle was going to be, So Why Are Most Christian Socialists? I thought it sounded kind of funny. You should see the responses of people who are so offended to think that I would call God a capitalist. My first question is, do you know what a capitalist is? They've been trained, taught, and educated that a capitalist is greedy. And therefore, how could I call God greedy? And then I say, well, what is greed? Who is more greedy? The person who wants the right to manage their life, to produce and defend themselves and their family, or the person who says, you have an obligation to produce and defend for me? Who is more selfish? Who is more charitable? The entrepreneur who creates a business that employs hundreds or thousands 
and therefore feeds the hungry and clothes the naked? Or the person who gives $10 to their favorite charity and then advocates against entrepreneurialism? Who is more charitable? Jefferson discovered these principles. He didn't invent them. Jefferson studied like a maniac. When he wanted to know what the Anglo-Saxons did, he didn't ask. He read. And when he couldn't find the truth in his language, he learned their language so he could read their ancient documents. We complain because over 30% of the children educated in public schools graduate illiterate in English. And yet we claim to be free. Yet the fathers of our freedom, when they wanted to study a principle, were willing to just go take it upon themselves to learn another language. Wouldn't it have been funny if in the grand scheme of eternity, Jefferson stood up and said, well, I wanted to know what the Anglo-Saxons did, but there was no program at my school for studying Anglo-Saxon. Aren't we grateful that that's not how he was thinking? What if you knew the most important day of Thomas Jefferson's life to him? What if you had studied his life so thoroughly that you could name the date and time that he says changed the future of his life and the destiny of all that was connected to his work? What if you could know by asking him, what was the single most important day for you that led to your discovery of these ancient principles? Would you be willing to listen to his answer? Regardless of whether you agree with what I've been saying tonight, would that interest you? I never knew Thomas Jefferson said such a thing. I had studied a little bit, maybe read 20 or 30 books on the Founding Fathers before I came across this quote, which I must have skimmed over in the past, where he described the deciding moment in his life. It was on May 29th, 1765. I suggest you research what was going on in late May of 1765. Who was Patrick Henry? Why does it matter? Everyone in this room and everyone who subsequently watches this via video could have a life-changing experience if they contemplated what Jefferson contemplated on that day in history. He had heard of this great orator who is going to be speaking out against the Stamp Act. You should research what the Stamp Act was. It's almost hysterical when compared to the taxing authority we have given our governments over us today. Yet, this is when that famous speech was given when he told the assembled House of Burgesses in Virginia, well, if this be treason, make the most of it. Here's what Jefferson said in his own words about that day. 
I attended the debate standing at the door of the lobby of the House of Burgesses and heard the splendid display of Mr. Henry's talents as a popular orator. They were great indeed, such as I have never heard from any other man. He appeared to me to speak as Homer wrote. Now, most people would say, who's Homer? And how did he write? The first book I read in my life, after the first grade, Danny and the Dinosaur, was when I was 19 years old. And it was a book of scripture that started me on a journey. The second book that I read interestingly enough, was the Odyssey by Homer about a journey, the epic journey. I suggest if you've read it that you might read it again, paying attention this time to something you probably were not taught in public schools. The journey of life is fruitful or devastating as determined by the degree to which a man lives by principle. You find the character Odysseus, or Ulysses, if you prefer the Roman version, on the island of Calypso. Paradise! Calypso is a nymph, a beauty. Odysseus has been away from his wife fighting wars and he's trapped against his will by this beautiful nymph who forces him to live with her. Beautiful island, paradise. And if you read just this one example, the beginning of that chapter, Homer describes Odysseus not as happily companioned with this beautiful woman in paradise, But on the seashore, looking for home, wondering about his wife and family. What is that? There's a principle. What is that principle? Why was Jefferson so moved by Patrick Henry that he said, Patrick Henry spoke like Homer wrote? The reason Homer was studied by the founders is he wrote great allegories that taught principles about how man should live. And he wrote in a way that even the most simple among men could identify the principles. It doesn't take a college degree. You do not have to be a mystic. Matter of fact, you cannot be a mystic and understand truth. It does not take a high degree of intellect, nor does it take a high degree of intellectual discipline to understand principles. All it takes is a desire to first identify them and then live by them. And everyone within the sound of my voice can do that. It changes life. Patrick Henry rallied the people around principles and set Jefferson on his course 
on his odyssey to discover what he said all of the great societies recognized as the great principles, the ancient order of things, and restore them so that this could be the beginning of a new age. The world is changing, as my friend Les McGuire has said. Why is it changing? Because we are waking up. We are sharing the message of principles, not issues, and allowing people to experience the power of their own mind. Some would find it ironic that I'm quoting from Ayn Rand to teach this principle. But in John Galt's speech, she points out a fundamental truth that is related to everything we've discussed here tonight. Before you judge her, would you hear what she has to say, not what others have to say about her? Before you judge her, would you read what she has said about these principles? And just because she may not have lived up to all of them, would you consider the possibility that principles are true, even if some who teach them don't live up to them? I'm not saying do as I say, not as I do. That is a cop-out. I'm saying that all of us see a horizon when we identify a principle. And as we choose to follow the path to obtain that result, there's a gap. There's a difference between our current habits and our current behavior and where we want to be. Just because we're not there yet doesn't mean we're not successfully pursuing the journey. The question isn't, are you there yet? The question is, what direction are you headed? To quote my Roman Catholic philosophy professor, there's a tradition in Catholic theology about St. Peter, who upon finding out that in Rome he would meet his certain death, he turned to leave. It's very similar to the tradition among Latter-day Saints, where we learn in the historical record that the prophet Joseph Smith was leaving to escape persecution. And God said to St. Peter, as he turned to leave from what was certain destruction, Quo vadis? Where are you going? It does not matter if you've reached your destination, if you're on the right path and you're pursuing the correct course. The question that is more useful is not, are we there yet? The question that's more useful is, where are you going? The founders followed the same path as St. Peter and Joseph and those who have always stood for principles before them. They pledged in their declaration of principles that they were going to follow a path even if it meant certain death, dishonor, and bankruptcy. Why? Listen to what Ayn Rand has to say. In the character of John Galt, she says, 
both sides of this great conflict agree that morality demands the surrender of your self-interest and of your mind. She's talking about the world in scarcity, where the choice is between liberals and conservatives, where the choice is between not enough and a little bit more. It's a, it's a false dichotomy. It's a false debate. Whatever else they fought about in their world, in the matrix, it was against man's mind that all your moralists have stood united. It was man's mind that all their schemes and systems were intended to despoil and destroy. Now choose for yourself to perish or to learn Man's mind is his basic tool of survival. Life is given to him. I would ask, Miss Rand, by whom? Survival is not. His body is given to him. By whom? Its sustenance is not. His mind is given to him. Its content is not. To remain alive He must act. And before he can act, he must know the nature and purpose of his action. The nature and purpose of his action. The laws of nature and of nature's God. He cannot obtain his food without a knowledge of food and of the way to obtain it. He cannot dig a ditch or build a cyclotron without a knowledge of his aim and the means to achieve it. To remain alive, a man must think. But to think is an act of choice. The key to what you so recklessly call human nature, the open secret you live with yet dread to name, is the fact that a man is a being of volitional consciousness. Reason does not work automatically. Thinking is not a mechanical process. The connections of logic are not made by instinct. The function of your stomach, lungs, or heart is automatic. I wonder who did that, Miss Rand. The function of your mind is not. In any hour and issue of your life, you are free to think or to evade that effort. But you are not free to escape from your nature, from the fact that reason is your means of survival. So that for you, who are a human being, the question to be or not to be should be the question to think or not to think. It's a challenge to research. The 13 principles of prosperity beg the question, Do you live the life you love? Is the life you live worth fighting for? Is the cause you serve worth living for? The only way a man who is honest with himself or a woman who is honest with herself can answer that question is to know something about the laws of nature and of nature's God, to know something about the principles that govern, the laws upon which all blessings are predicated. 
I did a search in the scripture and I found over a hundred reference to this concept. If you keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. If you're not prospering, there are only two logical explanations. Either God is a liar and he does not govern or you're not keeping his commandments. Now, there could be many reasons why you're not keeping the commandments. I would suggest that to honest and good people, the number one reason, they don't know them. They may be able to say them, but they don't understand them because that requires that we think about them. That requires that we ponder and research. Now, some of us do know them, and we choose to break them, and we pay a terrible price. But if you're not prospering, it's self-evident to all lovers of freedom. Why? These 13 principles, real quickly, changed my life and are changing the lives of thousands as they wake up from the sleep that has blinded them. The first principle is that God is the author of prosperity. Chance does not govern. Prosperity is not the consequence of good luck or accident. There are natural laws and principles. The second principle is that faith begins with self-interest. I've written an essay on this subject. I suggest that you read it if you're interested. For the sake of our argument today, or the presentation today, I will simply explain it this way. Faith has been described as the hope for things not seen. The assurance of things to come. The assurance or certainty, even though you may not know what the path looks like, you know what the destination is. You cannot have faith unless you have self-interest. If you do, another way to say that would be Alice in Wonderland when the Cheshire cat says, where do you want to go? Because she asked him which path she should take. And she said, I don't know. Doesn't matter to me. Now I'm paraphrasing, but the answer to the question, if you say, which way should I go? And I say, where do you want to end up? And you say, I don't care then it doesn't matter. Faith is the power by which you progress down a path. You must begin by asking yourself the question, what is the destination you seek? Who is seeking the destination? If it is not you, it is not faith. That's why faith, by the way, without works is dead. You can't have faith without self-interest. That is the motivation or incentive in all human beings. If you want to learn how to motivate or lead people without force or coercion, you must understand principle number two. You want to know why the capitalists always beat the bureaucrats? Always. In the long run, principles always govern. And the bureaucrats are trying to pass laws inconsistent with principle. It's like trying to put your hand out to stop the flow of a stream the water will go around it. No matter how big of a dam you build, in the end, the water will win. Because principles govern. 
You may look like you're winning for a time, but faith is the assurance of things you haven't seen yet because you know the principles upon which your objectives are based. The opposite of faith is belief in chance, also called despair. The third principle is that agency implies stewardship or self-interest implies stewardship. That's a short abbreviation. I'll simply elaborate it by saying this. Agency means we all have within us the ability and power to choose whether we think or not and what we want. Some have said it's the ability to choose between good and evil. We all have it. You can force me to not obtain it. You can tie my hands. You can put me in prison. But there's only one way you destroy agency, remember, and that's deception. Well, agency, that ability to choose, implies stewardship, or in other words, implies that you must be willing to be responsible for your choice. Everything you do is going to have a consequence. You can choose your action. You cannot choose the consequence. That's the great lie. The great lie is that it doesn't matter how you choose. Choose this way. You can get what you want. You'll find a way. No. All blessings are predicated upon laws. You can choose whether you obey or not. You cannot choose the consequence. Agency implies stewardship. A true capitalist is a steward over all the resources put in their power. A consumer denies stewardship and thinks ownership is a license to destroy. Think that one through. Perspective determines action. If you don't know the truth, you will act as a person who doesn't know the truth. If you're deceived, you will act as a person who thinks they know the truth and complain about why you're not getting what you're supposed to get. Matter of fact, that's a key. If you don't like the results in life and you think you're living rightly, you're deceived. You should be happy. Now you know that you can do something about it. Because by its very definition, deception implies that you don't know. Does that make sense? I've heard people say that when a tragedy happens... They've been laboring under a false conception or a lie and someone finally comes clean and tells them about some horrendous thing that they've been deceived about. I've heard people define those moments as the worst days or moments of their lives. They're denying principle number three. Because the day they learned the truth about why they weren't obtaining what they were choosing, or in other words, the day they discovered they were deceived, gave them power now to act freely. It was quite literally the remedy to their despair. But perspective determines action. If you don't have faith in principles, it doesn't matter. Another way to say that, by the way, is knowledge is power. Principle number five is that people are assets. I'll simply summarize that by saying that people have intrinsic value individually. Regardless of what group you may categorize them into, Regardless of what they may look like or even act like, there is a certain intrinsic value to human life. I would argue to all life. There's a hierarchy, however, of consciousness and volition. People are assets. Things have no intrinsic value. This is where Karl Marx and Frederick Engels made their fatal flaw. They thought the measure of success and prosperity was related to the world out here and that value was in these things. And therefore, they oppressed people and killed millions trying to bring about their cause. Principle number six is that human life value is the source or creator of all property value. Or in other words, the only reason we value things at all is because of what we can do with them. 
Principle number seven is that dollars follow value. There's a lot of ways to teach this, but the reason I word it that way is simply this. We live in a world where people are constantly asking this question. How do I obtain more money? And they violate a principle in answering it. So, I say dollars follow value. What does that mean? It means if there's no deception or coercion and you want more money, where does the money currently exist if you don't have it? It exists in the pockets and bank accounts of other people. How can you get it or obtain it from them without force or coercion? You must be willing to freely trade with them something they value more than having the money. Read Francisco's money speech in the book Atlas Shrugged from that perspective. And you'll understand why it is not money that the scriptures say is the root of all evil, but it's the love of money. Because the love of money violates principle number seven. Principle number eight, exchange creates wealth. When two people freely trade, it is self-evidently true that both must profit. If there is no profit, there has been compulsion or coercion. It is self-evidently true. If a transaction occurs and there is no profit, there has been compulsion or coercion or deception. It is impossible for people to freely trade without a profit. Impossible. Without coercion or compulsion. Think it through. If it was a free trade, why would you ever choose to give up something for something else? Only because you value what you're obtaining more than what you had. And that must be true for both people. The deception is if you only measure profit in dollars and cents. People say, well, I didn't really want to do that, but I did it anyway. That's deception. What you do is the result of what you've chosen. And what you've chosen, unless you were deceived or compelled, was the act of your own volition. Agency implies stewardship. The next principle is related to that one, that profit is the tool of validation. Or in other words, profit is the evidence that you have created value for someone else. If you're running a business that you believe supports a noble cause and you have not learned how to identify that profit is being created, there are one of two things that are being violated. Either agency implies stewardship. You're not being a good steward and you're not measuring the result of what you're doing. You could be profiting and not knowing it. A lot of small businesses have this problem. The other problem would be a violation of exchange creates wealth. If you're violating that principle, you see... By compelling or deceiving, that would explain why you're not profiting or allowing yourself to be compelled or deceived. I know I'm going quickly. I'm not trying to teach them to you. I'm trying to give you the seed that I found. Jefferson didn't even explain most of these. Matter of fact, when he wrote about them, he wrote maybe two sentences on most of them. As if it was a duh principle. That's what I call it, technical term. Oh yeah, we all know this. Wow, let's put that in the law. Sweet. (laughs) You write the essays explaining what these mean and then teach those essays to your children. Don't wait for me to write them. What good is that anyway? What evidence do you have that your brain is on? Take these principles, think them through, write them down, explain them, act upon them. It will change your life. 
Principle number 10, productivity is the standard. The choice is whether you will be a consumer or a producer. A consumer is a person who lives life on planet Earth consuming more value than they have created. They are sometimes called the idlers. They want others to serve them, but they freely choose not to create value for others. If you produce more value than you consume, you're a producer. Productivity is the standard. How productive have you been? Principle number 11 is that force destroys freedom and prosperity. Real simply, I've referred to it all night. Let me show it to you this way. If you falsely believe that you are living by principle and you are not, are you going to get the blessings associated with living by true principles? No, you cannot. The only way you can destroy someone's agency, the ultimate source of our freedom and liberty, is by allowing them to believe a lie. In the scriptures, the enemy is always first labeled the liar, the deceiver, even the deceiver from the beginning. He sought to destroy the agency of man, Sometimes the religions of the world teach it's that he wanted to compel us to choose righteousness. Yes, that's true. But the only true form of compulsion is deception. Because deception allows a person to choose evil thinking it is good. It is more evil than incarcerating someone. Because even incarcerated, a person can choose the good. But when a person is deceived, they have no power. The reason we are compelled by our own consciousness to teach others these principles when we learn them is because we understand the pain of laboring under deception, thinking we've been living right and not seeing the fruit of right living. And when that splinter is removed from our minds, something swells within us and we want to answer the question, Do you know what the matrix is? Do you know what it is that is wrong with the world? Principle number 12, collective action has no unique moral authority. If something is irrational and a violation of principle when one person does it, just because they get a friend to join with them doesn't change the truth. If everybody in this room decided that the million dollars in my bank account would be better used distributed evenly in this room, it doesn't make the act of going into my bank account and taking it by threat of force any more righteous than if one of you showed up to my house at midnight and under point of a gun demanded my money. It simply allows a deception to be perpetrated. That is, by hiding under the cloak of government, we call evil good. Because, you know, No one needs that much money anyway. Collective action has no unique moral authority. If a gang does it, it's just as wrong as if an individual does it. And principle 13, personal liberty requires private property. Again, that one takes some research. I didn't understand that one for a long time. But I'll give it to you this way. Private property, in its simplest sense, begins with the physical 
portion of the universe that every conscious mind controls, namely their own body. If you deny the principle of private property, you deny the right of a man to use his own mind to control his body and every other physical thing. And that's why, in this day and age, we actually tolerate public debates about whose right it is or is not to control other human beings. We don't say it that way. We just say, should we pass a tax to build a soccer stadium? It'll only cost $5 per citizen. That's only a half an hour of labor of every free man. And we don't see that by doing so, we have just destroyed a half an hour of that man's freedom. And one piece at a time, the hours of our lives add up. And as we grow into maturity, we start to look around the world and we say something's wrong. Why is everybody driving the same cars? Why is everybody living in the same houses? Why is everybody working at the same type of jobs? Why is everybody worried about Social Security? Why does no one know what a 401k really is, but they're hoping that that's the answer to retirement? Why is it that we think that investing means gambling in the stock market? But we would say we would never bet our retirement on a slot machine. Why is it that everyone knows in their heart that voting in an election, though important for most, does not make a free people? We know that, yet about as involved as we get in the governing of our lives in the social world is occasionally showing up at the polls. And then we vote for people, and we pretend like we know what we're doing. We've seen a yard sign, so we check a box. Or there's a last name that is a name that's in our genealogy, so we'll vote for that person. (laughs) Or there's an elephant or a donkey, and we identify with those symbols. We don't know those men and women or the principles that they stand for. Even the platforms of the donkey and the elephant don't contain references to clearly identified principles anymore. They talk about issues. They talk about the ways we should run the prison. Should we have peanut butter and jelly on Thursdays? Or should we have catered macaroni and cheese on Fridays? I know it sounds crude, but look at what we really vote for. When's the last time you really decided to ask yourself, what were the principles behind a person's campaign? When is the last time you showed up when a major political figure had a town hall rally and had organized among your friends one or two questions to identify the principles for which that person stood? I know it's not your fault. You had to work, right? Or there was a basketball game on TV. But when you're driving home on Friday night, wondering why everybody else is on rush hour traffic at 6 o'clock, ask yourself, Is that in the Constitution? 
that we all have to drive home from work at the same time, that we all have to buy homes with 30-year mortgages, that we all have to send our kids to the same schools, that we should let people we don't know tell us whether our children should be compelled to have this or that medical treatment? Boy, that really wakes people up if it's their friend or family member. But we'll read the news headline and say, boy, I'm glad that's not happening here. What's the world coming to? And in the end, like Neo, when Morpheus asks us, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? Some of us simply have a mental stupor. We know we're supposed to choose, but we don't even know enough to know what the right choice is. That was my life. That was my life. And then a friend woke me up. You're here because you know something. The question is, are you now going to do something about it? Are you willing to be a producer? The producer revolution has begun. The world is changing. The question is, how are your ideas working for you? The invitation I give you tonight is, wake up. Turn your brain on. Start with these 13 principles. These 13 principles you can teach a first grader will make you more effective in the world of civics and politics and social and community organizations, in family life, in church affairs, in government, in your employment. They will change your entire perspective. And you don't need to have me approve your business plan. You don't need to call me and ask me what you should do with your 401k money. You don't need to come to American Founders University and take real estate training. Though you're free to do all of those things, if you don't learn the principles of prosperity, you have chosen a pill. I invite you to choose wisely. Thanks.